Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 47. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Terry Walls. Who is Dr. Terry Walls? Well, Terry Walls is a game changer in the world of multiple sclerosis. She grew up in Iowa, went to Drake University, and received her bachelor's degree in fine arts in studio art. She then went on to get her medical degree from the University of Iowa before completing her internal medicine residency at the University of Iowa as well, and became a faculty member in 2000. Without getting into the story that we're going to learn about through the podcast, let me just say that she is a clinical professor of medicine and has maintained that position throughout her career and has begun clinical trials for quite a while now in the world of multiple sclerosis. The reason being, which we'll get into in the podcast, is that Dr. Walls has secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, which initially had confined her to a tilt-recline wheelchair for multiple years before she began a journey of onion peeling the processes as to which the reasons for why she has progressive multiple sclerosis, as do many other people, and what are the possible upstream targets that she could attack, ameliorate, or just work with to try and change the prognosis and trajectory of her disease so that we see a different outcome as humans, right? And in this case, she was specifically working towards her own outcome in the beginning and now has translated her wealth of knowledge and her clinical expertise into helping many others develop a self-derived ability to reverse their own disease. Now, when I say self-derived, it's because it takes their own motivation to do it, but she is laying out the framework, the primer, the ideology behind what you can do for yourself to change an otherwise devastating diagnosis to actually become something you can live with and actually not just live with, but thrive with. And that's something we get into in this podcast, and there's many layers to this, but let me just suffice it to say that I don't want to waste any time giving you my opinion on it because Dr. Walls is an excellent storyteller and we get deep into some of the weeds as to what happened. The last thing I want to say is she wrote a book called The Walls Protocol, which goes through a step-by-step process of what she did. And so everybody who listens to this podcast has access to this information themselves and also has the ability to go be a patient in her clinic if you are someone suffering with MS or have a family member with MS. So there's much to be said in this process. So with that being said, Let's get started talking to Dr. Terry Walls. Well, hello, Dr. Terry Walls. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. I know you are on the other side of the country. So where do I have the pleasure of speaking with you from? Uh, I'm in Iowa City, Iowa. So about um, four hours from Chicago. Beautiful. Well, you come well known as a great storyteller. So part of today is going to be a story mm-hmm. that you will tell that is captivating to say uh, it's really an understatement. And and so for me, when I think about your story, which I've known for quite a while and the desire to share it, I really want to look at this from the beginning, why you went down this path, how it actually came to be. And then I want to split this into a little more granularity, looking at why the mitochondria are so important in this process from the biogenesis standpoint and also the prevention of mitophagy. So the floor is yours. Um, Well, let's tell the story. Yeah. So uh, 20 years ago, uh, out walking with my wife, Jackie, a half mile from home, my left leg grows weak, dragging a hobble home. 
Um, when I see the neurologist, he says, Terry, this could be bad or really, really bad. So I go through the workup. Uh, the next three weeks, I'm in bed next to Jackie thinking about my 20 years of worsening electrical face pain. I know I have a progressive disorder. I'm praying secretly for a fatal diagnosis. Three weeks later, I hear multiple sclerosis. Now, I'm a doc, so I do my research. I find the very best MS center in the country. I figure out who is their best MS specialist, and I see them. Take the newest drugs. Three years later, I hear tilt, recline, wheelchair. My electrical face pains have been getting relentlessly worse. My 10-year-old daughter hugs me as tears stream down my face. And I ask myself, am I really doing all that I can? I, my thinking's still clear. I go to PubMed day after day, and I spend time reading the basic science, which, by the way, is quite hard because I'm not a PhD, so <clears throat> it's, it's uh, hard. But I cite mitochondria are the driver of disability. And I devise a supplement cocktail to support my mitochondria. The speed of my decline slows, and I'm super grateful. Then I discover a study using electrical stimulation of muscles in people who are paralyzed. I ask my physical therapist, can I try that? He calls it E-STEM. He says it's for athletes. And Terry, this is really painful. And you have so much pain. Uh, but I convince him to give me a test session. It does hurt really, really bad. <laughs> but when it's over, I feel great. And he tells me it's probably the endorphins. And I begin doing E-STEM to as much pain as I can tolerate. And then I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take their course on neuroprotection. I have a longer list of supplements. Not a lot's happening. And I have this aha. You know, Chris, I'm sort of embarrassed by how long it took me to have this aha. Like, what if I redesigned my paleo diet that I've been following for five years based on you know, the supplements I'm taking based on my research and, and on functional medicine. So that's several more months of research. And I had this new way of eating. Now for a little more context, I'll tell you, I'd begun to have a little trouble with brain fog. My chief of staff, and I think correctly so, uh, had decided he's gonna force my hand. He, he reassigned me to the traumatic brain injury clinic and tells me that there won't be any residents. You'll be seeing patients as part of a multidisciplinary team and you'll be having to examine them, do the notes yourself. Describes the job. And I know physically, it's, I can't do that. And my wife says, you can't do that. And I'm like, yep, I know. Come January, I will go and either I can do this job or I can't. And then I'll have to apply for medical disability. And now, it, at this time, at the end of December, I'm so weak, I cannot sit up in a regular chair more than 10 minutes. If I do, I am flat out exhausted and I can't function for about uh, 48 hours. 
My electrical face pains are turning on more frequently, much more difficult to turn off. As I said, I'm getting to have brain fog. I can take a f just a few steps with two walking sticks. Otherwise, I'm in that uh, tilt recline uh, wheelchair. I have a zero gravity chair that tilts me back with my knees higher than my nose. I have one in my office, another one at the VA where I'm seeing patients and uh, one at home and I'm eating my meals like that, you know, tilted back. And my family, of course, is very concerned. I'm going to choke. I think uh, right they're rightly concerned. And I start this new way of eating December 26th. And uh, this very structured paleo diet. Uh, and then in January, I go to this traumatic brain injury clinic. In the first two weeks, I'm just watching my new partners do the exams from my, you know, tilt recline wheelchair. <laughs> and um, then the th third week of January comes. So now it's the fourth week of this new way of eating. And I you know I see patients. And I come home that first day, and Jack and Jackie says, "So, hon, how was it?" It's like, well, you know, it was wasn't too bad. And, you know, I, I do four clinics that, that week. And on Friday, I like, you know, hun, could we bring a, a, a regular chair for me? I, I want to sit in a regular chair. You know, I get sort of emotional about that because that's a big deal. Yeah. I hadn't sat in a regular chair for a meal for four years. I couldn't go out to a restaurant. I couldn't, uh, if we, I couldn't eat with my family at the um, family meals at Jackie's house, at her parents' house, because I, I couldn't eat in a regular chair. I, we had to take um, the zero gravity chairs. And I had supper, sitting at the table with my family. And then my physical therapist says, Terry, you're getting stronger. And he advances my exercise. And so I go, I go from 10 minutes uh, in the morning to 10 minutes in the morning and in the evening. And then we do 15 minutes twice a day then 20 twice a day, then 30 twice a day. And he says, you know, 45 minutes of electrical current um, will build stronger muscles. Uh, and so I, I start, you know, adding a little more uh, exercise and current. Uh, and then I start walking in the hallways at the hospital with two walking sticks. And, and my colleagues are like, oh my God, Dr. Walls, you're walking. And are you taking that Tizabri? I go, no, 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 I'm not taking Tizabri. Uh, and I showed them my e-stim device. Uh, and um, then I uh, I decided I want to try riding my bike because you know now I've been I've been walking, walking with my walking sticks and without walking sticks, not far, mind you, but you know half mile is a really long distance when you've been unable to sit in a chair. And I want to ride my bike. Um, so we have an emergency family meeting. And uh, Jackie tells, forgive me, I'm going to get a little tearful here, tells yeah. my big 16-year-old boy, 
Zach, you run alongside on the left. And she tells my 13-year-old daughter, Zeb, you run alongside on the right, and she'll follow. And we get in a position. She gives the all clear, and I push off, and I bike around the block. And the big 16-year-old boy, he's crying. The 13-year-old girl, she's crying. Jackie's crying. And as you can tell, I still cry telling that story. Yeah. Because it was at that moment that I understood the current understanding of progressive multiple sclerosis. You know, yes, it's secondary progressive MS is incomplete. And who knows how much recovery might be possible. So I keep biking a little bit more every day. And in October, Jackie signs me up for the courage ride. Says, you know, let, let's just see how far you can go. It's 18.5 miles. And when I cross the finish line again, we're all crying. You know, my kids are crying, Jackie's crying, I'm crying. And that fundamentally changes how I think about disease and health. It will change the way I practice medicine. It will change the focus of my research. And it, you know, it's given me a new mission on life to let people know that even if you are profoundly disabled, even if you're, the current understanding of medicine is that recovery is not possible. I'm here to tell you that if I can come back from as deep a hole as I was in, then there is hope for you. And I, I have to wipe my nose here a little bit. Yeah, take the time, Terry. Thank you for being so vulnerable about this. I say, I've heard you say this story a few times. I've read your book, and the fact that it is still this emotional just says to the depth of how incredible the transformation was for you, and frankly, for everyone to hear. Because to your point, we both trained in traditional academia, allopathic medicine, and we're told, sorry, this is the end of the road. You get in the pathway of progressive disease of whatever it is in your case progressive ms here are the drugs if they don't work i'm sorry that's all we have and you boldly and bravely said no and and i really want to touch well, on this you know chris i'm going to correct you there yeah uh, i did all of that not to recover because i had accepted that you know i had progressive ms their functions once lost were gone forever yeah. I did all of that because, you know, my hands could still work. I could still feed myself. I could still right. wipe my own butt. I want to keep those limited functions I had as long as possible. Right. And I, I you know, I had, I had children who were, who were now adolescents. I could either give in to the despair that I felt, and let me assure everyone who's listening, I had plenty of despair because <laughs> I had a terribly grim future, bedridden, demented, my trigeminal neurology was very close to being permanently on, such that swallowing, speaking would have caused this horrific electrical face pain. Right. And I had redone my living well and my durable medical power of attorney such that if I quit swallowing and quit talking, there'd be no IV fluids. Mm-hmm. So that I knew that the end would eventually come. Right. I, and I, I took great comfort in that. And when you have a progressive neurologic disorder, you, you, part of the coping is you let go of the future. Mm -hmm. And you accept, I'll just take today as it unfolds. So I had let go of the future many years earlier. 
which meant I still didn't have the future when I'm, I'm walking around, even in my neighborhood. I didn't know what any of that meant. I was just taking each day as it unfolded. It wasn't until I got on that bike that I thought, you know, my future might actually be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows how much recovery might be possible. And by yeah. the way, this morning I jogged around my neighborhood. <gasps> you did. Congratulations. Yeah, so so, so I, I've been jogging uh, for the last year. Oh my gosh, Terry. That's so lovely to hear. Oh my gosh. That is fabulous. So let me dial you back a little bit. So when you first started the process of, and again, I'm still going to say bravely, even though the view of bravery was a little different, I'm still going to say bravely because you still were planning to maintain function to the best of your ability until the, the tides changed in your direction, let's say. And there was a point there where you were on supplements based on some research you were doing and you were starting to learn the biochemistry, which to your point, we learn in med school, but we don't really carry it into the clinical space as well. We sort of forget it until we fall back into the IFM world, the Institute for Functional Medicine. But you started taking the supplements and there was a period of time where I've heard you say that you stopped them because you didn't think they were working. Tell that yeah. story. Because I think this, is, this yeah. is fascinating. And then from there, before you go, from there, then flip into but it's not all about supplements, which I hear way too many people say, because this is just a oh, massive yeah. piece of your story. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm uh, reading the basic science. I decide that the uh, big driver of uh, cognitive decline, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS, Huntington's is mitochondrial dysfunction. And that my experience with MS was not of relapses, but of this relentless decline. I'd had maybe two relapses in my entire journey. Otherwise, it's been this relentless decline. So I figure out, okay, it's mitochondria. Do more research. I finally pieced together uh, a, a handful of supplements that'll be good for my mitochondria. Uh, and about six months into this, you know, not a damn thing's changed. You know, I'm still exhausted. I, I still can't really sit up very well. Uh, it, uh, you know, I still need my tilt recline wheelchair. And I'm disgusted. So I quit. And, you know, next work, work day is the same. Uh, no different. Uh, and then, th but 36 hours into it after quitting, I just really can't get out of bed. I am so exhausted. And then 48 hours into this, you know, I'm really more exhausted. And after three days, Jackie comes in and says, you know, honey, how about you try your supplements again? And I take them that evening. And the next morning, I can get up and go back to work. And I think, wow, that is really interesting. So two weeks later, I, I, I tell Jack, you know, I want to try this experiment again. I'll stop and we'll just see how I do. So it takes 36 hours to have that crushing exhaustion, just can't function, can't get out of bed. And uh, I wait three days then I take them and the next morning I can get back up to work. So I am so excited. Like, oh my God, I think I'm figuring some stuff out that my neurologist isn't mentioning to me. 
my primary care doc isn't mentioning to me. And now I am so excited to spend some time searching PubMed. And I call the um, IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board that I'm a member of, and I say, I would like to review all the trials that involve uh, the brain. Uh, because I figure it, it'll be good for me to get more comfortable reading these, A, the protocols, reading the research, to, and, and, and I do get more comfortable, and I, and I slowly get better and better at, at reading um, uh, the research uh, and you know, slowly adding to my uh, supplement cocktail, which, by the way, it was my discovery of the um, study using electrical stimulation was because I was assigned to review that study uh, for the IRB. I was like, wow, what an interesting study. Mm -hmm. What an interesting study. And, there, and so then I go to PubMed and there's 212 other papers about electrical stimulation. It doesn't take long to read 212 abstracts when you're highly motivated, like, oh my God, well, because I mean, I wasn't quite paralyzed, but you know, close enough. Yeah. So, so the, the next piece of that pie, so you start to realize now that these biochemicals, let's say that supplements you're taking are having an effect in the mitochondria and other parts of your neurologic pathways, whether it's mitochondrial biogenesis or, or a myelin deposition or whatever else is going on in the autoimmune pathway. You then start to realize that you're capable then of deriving some of these molecules through food. And I remember hearing you once said, I think you went to the uh, Oregon State Linus, Linus Pauling website, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Which I think is one of the best websites out there for anyone trying to figure out what is in food and how, did that, how does that food then give you a micronutrient or what Bonnie Kaplan calls cofactors that then allow certain processes to take place in the body, turn substrate into product, which the product is what we need for function. So then you started to now shift yourself into this, okay, my paleo diet that I've been on for a while, you're starting to now morph it into what you've now called the Walls Protocol Diet mm -hmm. or the Walls Diet. What was that transition like for you? And how did you iterate yeah. through that process? Well, so the first thing I want to be clear is I, I love the paleo diet. Uh, I've been a vegetarian for about 20 years. And um, so whole grains... Um, whole wheat bread, uh, uh, beans and rice, love that. I had vegetables. Uh, I still had some eggs. And uh, then I got introduced uh, to the paleo diet through uh, my neurologist. I uh, read uh, some of the papers on Lauren Cordain's website, decided that, okay, um, maybe this makes sense. I'll give it a whirl. And uh, the transition from not eating meat for 20 years to eating meat. It took me, you know, several months. And I realized, okay, this, you know, I've been damaging my brain clearly for at least 20 years. Who knows how long it's going to take to repair it, maybe seven. You know, so I have to be a little patient here. Uh, but I felt like I was doing something. Then, um, and I'm implementing uh, uh, what... Lauren Cordain uh, describes as a, uh, a AIP kind of protocol. Uh, but it's mostly the emphasis on what to remove, not about necessarily uh, what to be eating. 
Right. More elimination style diets for autoimmune protocol. I got it. Yep. 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 Elimination diet. And uh, then I'm adding supplements. Uh, and then uh, again, I know the paleo diet people love to think that uh, the it was the paleo that fixed me, but actually I, I continued to go downhill for another five years, uh, even though I was completely grain-free, legume-free, dairy-free. Um, so it, it, the paleo diet, was not as, as I was using it, was not enough. Uh, supplements were helpful, but not enough. E-STEM was helpful, but not enough. I, and when I had this big aha, like, okay, um, you know, life's really complicated. I may, I think I know some nutrients that are important for my brain, but I'm sure there's many more than what is on this list in that, that I wonder if I use this list of important things and I figure out where they're in the food supply that I'll probably get other things that are really important. Uh, and so that's where the light is pulling. Uh, was super helpful. Uh, and you know, I, and to be honest, I can't remember uh, now exactly how many nutrients that I was chasing at that time. I uh, and so I, I did this uh, in the month of October, November, December, sorting out what were the foods I needed to stress. So I now had a notebook of foods that I needed to be stressing. Uh, and I started this new way of eating then, uh, December 26th. And I, I made the commitment that if it, if it wasn't organic, I, I can't eat it. Uh, and um, we're eating, uh, going to the uh, local organic grocer, uh, getting our foods there. And I had this you know, personal transformation. And now I'm in the traumatic brain injury clinic and in my primary clinic uh, with the uh, residents and the traumatic brain injury clinic uh, myself, and I'm asking my veteran patients, so what are you eating? What are you doing? And I'm talking with them about food, and I realize well, I can't just give them the list of foods that, I'm, that I know they need, uh, that I need to eat, and I have to come up with a concise way of getting them to uh, get these key nutrients. So I spent several months working on this, thinking about this. For a while, I was trying to make handwritten notes. I was trying to get a document through the, um, uh, what was the name of that? Uh, well, it was, actually, it's, uh, I think it's the Documents Committee. Uh, mm -hmm. that uh, you have to go through the VA and I couldn't get any of my documents approved because they were too right. controversial. So like, okay, I, I have to, be able to teach this quickly. Uh, and, and so over time, that's how I came up with the three cups of greens, three cups of color, three cups of sulfur rich, because mm -hmm. it was an easy way for people to remember when they would go home, it's nine cups of vegetables. And it's very funny. Uh, Chris, my vets would say, now is that per week or month? <laughs> <laughs> and we'd like, oh, no, no, that's per day. Like, oh my God, I, I couldn't possibly. Well, if you eat the nine cups of fruits and vegetables, and I would say vegetables and fruits, 
a plate full of greens, a plate full of color, a plate full of cabbage, onion, mushroom, family vegetables, and then, you know, two palm-sized servings of meat. And if they're a vegetarian, we, we gave them some options. Then if you want to eat, then eat whatever else you want to eat after that. Right. Because I always stress, here's what you add before I get around to, here's what you take away. Right. Because if you just say eat nine cups of vegetables, I'm like, I got to have my five servings of pasta first. Right. There won't be room. Right. If you get them to have the nine servings of vegetables first, you crowd out a lot of bad food. Right. And then the next time you see them, then you can talk to them like, okay, now that you're, you got the, the, the ads down, now we can talk about getting rid of the sugar, the gluten, the dairy. Uh, and then we sort out, do we have to take uh, eggs out or not? But Right. Very important. Th- we, always, we, always, we always did the ads first. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting play because in the world of children that I come from, where these diseases are unfortunately decreasing in age of onset, i.e. multiple sclerosis, to your point, was something I had never seen until about 10 years ago in a child under the age of 20. And so now we have had two cases. And so clearly the earlier onset denotes the earlier earlier period of earlier period of autoimmune damage i.e the glide path to developing the ability to develop the autoimmunity is now increasing in frequency and decreasing in time of onset and this uh, when i mean age related so that scares me because when i hear you saying to your point you did supplements you were exercising clearly to the best of your ability you were uh working on a, a reasonably high quality diet already and still not at the point you needed to but now you added in these nine cups of very important macronutrients that are loaded with micronutrients this scares me for the children of america today because we have very few kids eating one serving of a poor quality non-organic vegetable source than nine cups a day. So yeah. I want to break down a little bit of what's in each nine cups. So for the parents listening or the clinicians listening, yeah. get this too. But for the parents listening, <clears throat> understand what your child is missing when they're not getting these very important. Now let's start with the sulfur because I really love the sulfur yeah. based on the glutathiones, the detoxification pathways, all yeah. the other stuff. So let me explain why I care so much about this group. Uh, so the cabbage family, onion family, uh, those foods induce the glutathione synthetase. So that's going to boost the glutathione in my cells. It will make it easier for me to make a, a bunch of neurotransmitters in my brain. Uh, and it will uh, make more glutathione in my neurons. So it helps protect the neurons. So a lot of reasons why I want that to be there. Then uh, there's mushrooms. And um, we have numerous studies that show the more mushrooms you eat, the lower the rates of anxiety, depression, uh, developmental problems in children, uh, dementia, cognitive decline uh, in adults. Uh, And in animal studies, um, there are several species of mushrooms that we've clearly identified as being associated with more nerve growth factors. So lots of reasons to have mushrooms, to have, and you know, a couple servings uh, a week. Uh, I like to have mushrooms uh, every day. Uh, And I like to have a variety of mushrooms and I take mushroom products because, you know, um, they're just such potent neuroprotective uh, compounds. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And then the greens, the three cups of greens. Oh, yeah. What so do you... let's talk about uh, green leafy vegetables. Right. So uh, we have a million folks with MS, uh, but I think we have 5 million with macular degeneration. Uh, macular degeneration uh, is one of the leading causes of blindness. We know that though uh, in cataracts, uh, leading uh, another leading cause of uh, decreased vision. The more uh, blue, um, pardon me, the more green leafy vegetables that protects my uh, lenses and my retina from the harm from ultraviolet light, which we need in order to make vitamin D. So, and we need it for the favorable impact the ultraviolet light has on our immune cells. Eating more greens protects my eyeballs from the damage from that light I critically need. And we know, again, these studies that these same carotenoids in those green leafy vegetables, uh, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin, uh, lutein, uh, are also necessary nutrients for brain cells. And are so, the more of that that you eat, the lower the rates of cognitive decline. The green leafy vegetables, good sources of calcium, magnesium, uh, because magnesium is the central ion of chlorophyll, much like iron is for hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And it's a great source of dietary nitrate, mm -hmm. along with beets, by the way. So, mm -hmm. uh, and a good source of vitamin K1, which when I eat all that, my gut bacteria, if I have a healthy microbiome, will make uh, vitamin K2, MK7, which my ileum will absorb. My liver will make into K2MK4, and the highest concentration of K2MK4 is in my brain. Mm -hmm. um, so the vitamin K2, very helpful in mobilizing calcium out of my heart valves, out of my blood vessels, and into my teeth and my bones. And at least in the animal model, is very helpful for oligodendrocytes in making myelin mm -hmm. and making uh, activating the brain, brain stem cells for repairing uh, neurons. So lots of reasons to be having greens. And, and I'll make the observation. I must have had such a huge deficit of greens. Um, I, I could not get enough greens when I started eating them. You know, kale, collards, uh, uh, all these big salads. And I was eating you know, greens before, but suddenly I was like, uh, I would have easily six cups of uh, kale salad uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and now I'm recovering. I'm well enough that I can travel uh, to conferences, uh, attend some scientific meetings. And when I travel, I can't eat the way you know I'm eating at home. And at 36 hours, I could tell my energy's down, my mental clarity is down. And I, you know, I'm calling Jack saying, man, I, I still need the greens. So she gets home. She'd have a big bread bowl of uh, kale salad for me. And I'd, and I'd eat the whole thing. Right. After four years of eating greens at that level, apparently I, I caught up. Mm -hmm. I don't have to eat greens quite at that level. And, and I'm okay. And I just think I, that's super interesting. And this is in the context, Terry, which I think, again, the guests need to hear this. You were a vegetarian for 20 years. So in theory. And I had a great diet. So right. I had... when you, yeah. You hear vegetarians, vegetarianism, diet, perfection, all this kind of stuff. 
And there's so much more to all these statements. And you are getting to the granularity of the macros, how critically important they are in helping the nervous system, the brain, the neurons, the mitochondria, the, glut the glutathione pathways to do their job to protect you from whatever society's throwing us from an insult perspective. We haven't even gotten to that part of this conversation if we even have time to get to it today. So I think everybody listening, hear this loud and clear that there is a, is a need each human body needs. We are all technically ends of one, but there's a lot more to it than just saying you're on a vegetarian diet, a paleolithic diet, a ketogenic diet. There's a lot more here. You got to pay attention. And um, when we're eating processed foods, uh, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, if we're eating flour-based pastas, breads, cereals, the nutrition's been stripped out. Uh, you have calories and you are robbing your, your uh, biochemical bank account. You are robbing from your brain the things it needs to keep you well. You are robbing from your mitochondria the, the bio, biochemistry you need to keep you, you well. And you are dramatically accelerating disease processing. You are dramatically accelerating uh, the uh, harm of aging uh, and the earlier onset of frailty. Right. And oh, by the way, what are we feeding kids in school today every single day? Like, oh my God, it is so terrible. Abysmal. Calorie-dense, nutrient-poor foods every single day, driving the exact pathways you're talking about turning off. It's pretty sad. All right, Terry, I'd love to get granular now. So when we're looking at this and we think about mitochondria, so for everyone listening, most people know this already, but the mitochondria energy powerhouse of every single cell that produces the big chemical we need called ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the basically the molecule that runs the engines of all of our bodies, the moving the muscles, you know, turning into neurotransmitters, all of the above. What supplements and food molecules, and you can interchange them, it really doesn't matter. Are we targeting specifically, and I'm thinking here, CoQ10, alpha-poic acid, what are you looking for specifically in order to fix the biogenesis side and or the mitochondrial mitophagy prevention side? So I'm looking for uh, magnesium, uh, selenium, uh, zinc, uh, carnitine, lipoic acid, CoQ, B vitamins. Uh, that's uh, a great start. Uh, urolithin A uh, uh, can also be super helpful for autophagy. Spermidine is helpful for autophagy, but that's made from wheat germ, which would, uh, you know, I, I can't possibly tolerate. So. Uh, Fortunately, I can eat natto, which I do tolerate, uh, that I make myself from my black beans and sauerkraut, which lets my own gut make the spermidine. So uh, that's how I do that. And then because as we age, the uh, efficiency and the number of our mitochondria per cell steadily decline, unless we're exercising our mitochondria. So I do something called hormetic stress. Mm -hmm. So red light, ultraviolet light, um, strength training, uh, jogging or running. I still jog slowly, but you know I'm, I'm making progress. We're getting faster. Uh, vibration plate training, uh, uh, sauna, uh, cold cold exposure. All of those things uh, are a little bit uh, and phytonutrients. So I, I talk about having 200 different plant species in a year. It's a great family activity, and you can get it with spices, herbs, and it will make your children much more excited about 
trying new things. If you say I have a goal, okay, we've got 200 new plant species that we're going to have this year. Let's start on that list. And you could have a goal. I'm going to try and get uh, uh, 10, 10 different plants uh, this week. Uh, you know, 20 different plants uh, by the end of the month or 50 different plants by the end of the month. Make it a family fun game. That will help you out a lot. And in your case, fasting is not part of your regimen? Like, or oh, let's no. say ti- let's say time-restricted feeding? Oh, so if you follow me on Instagram, and everyone listening, you should follow me on Instagram. You get to see what I'm eating and not eating at drterrywalls.com. You'll see that I eat. People always ask me, what do you have for breakfast? And I keep answering, water. <laughs> uh, what do you have for lunch? And I keep answering, water. Uh, and uh, people follow me closely, they'll see um, that I often talk about, I eat every other day. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, uh, I have uh, for many years would spend a week uh, each month with reduced calories for a week out of that month. And I'm pretty hungry. And my family yeah. say a little crabby uh, uh, that the week that I'm that I'm having reduced calories. But that is exercising my mitochondria, just like when I do a sauna, that's exercising my mitochondria in that. You know, that's all part of my plan for healthy aging. That's my plan to live, to thrive to 120. And then when I'm right. doing that, I'll set a new goalpost up to live and thrive to 150. Right. And I, I would highly, highly concur with the letting your body starve a little is so important because it turns on that master metabolic regulator, AMP kinase. And AMP kinase is one of the precursors to mitochondrial biogenesis through PGC1-alpha, NERF1 and 2, which are all the processes you're speaking to are in some way, shape or form trying to hit these targets to allow our mitochondria to make more of themselves and then survive. Because to your other point, which I think is very, very important as we age, this structure and function starts to weaken time after time after time. So what we did at age 10, we can no longer do at age 30 and even less so at age 15, even less so at age 70. So we have to start thinking in the perspective, let's protect those cells so that they do maintain that ability at age 50, like a 30 year old, because we're doing the right things to keep our epigenetics and our chronologic age not the same as our biologic age. And I know you've done some work in this and I think yeah. you've spoken to your biologic age being younger than your chronologic age. You can yeah. speak to that a little too. So, you know, I decided to check my telomeres and I had myself mentally prepared, like, okay, you've got a progressive neurologic disorder. You're going to be, uh, don't be upset if you're 15 or even 20 years older than your chronologic age because you've had this you know, terrible neurologic disorder. So I sent my telomere tests off and it came back, you know, with a lot of trepidation, I'm opening up my envelope and I'm 15 years uh, biologically younger than my chronologic age. So uh, it's very exciting. I haven't, I haven't rechecked myself. Um, it's, it'd be sort of fun to check that again. Uh, and there, and I, I tell everyone, when you start following the walls protocol, a, a really fun thing to do is to, and there are a bunch of online biologic age calculators, complete it on yourself. Go to one of these sites, complete it, see what you can do. And then in another six months to a year, complete it again. And I predict you'll see that you're going to be younger. Another really cheap thing to do is take a picture of yourself Mm -hmm. and date it. Mm -hmm. And then take another one in six months to a year. Mm -hmm. In my clinics at the VA, routinely people would, would use it in front of us 
And we had estimate uh, 10 to 15 years worth of youthening over the next year as they implemented the walls protocol. Right, right. So but then we the... started telling people, get photos, get videos, because people won't believe that you were ever looked that bad. Right. And I, I want to speak to this little Terry, because I think this is super fascinating because what you're speaking to, again, I, I think the walls protocol, your, the entire structure of your protocol that you're doing at the university of Iowa and your clinic is not just specific for MS. I know it is targeted for your clinic as MS, but what you're doing can be used across the spectrum in any neurodegenerative disease. I think it'd be used in any autoimmune disease. I think this protocol could be attributed to almost anything, frankly. That's just my opinion, clearly not studied, but you know, I don't see a downside to it. But let's let's just say, okay, that is. So in my own career, you know, I have one of these metabolic processes where I can eat anything I want. I gain no weight. I'm a I'm a high burning machine. I'm a big runner, blah, blah, blah. So up until about age 34, I married a nutritionist in at when I was 30, and she was trying to explain to me what the reality of food was. And I learned nothing at Emory and University of Virginia in my training. So I come out and she's like, well, this is that. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I go and read, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I got sick and tired of being wrong. So I went to Arizona and studied under Andy Weil and started learning nutrition and learning from my wife that, okay, all the things she's saying is correct. I was totally misguided. And I went and did a VO2 max test with her at Canyon Ranch. And oh, by the way, at that time, I had a 54, which at 35 or seven, whenever it was, was okay. It wasn't great. And I was a big time athlete, played a lot of soccer. So that's neither here nor there. But now fast forward, I have been on a tear for the last 13 years in trying to maintain my metabolic health so I can live to 120 like you're talking about. And a couple of weeks ago, I went and did another VO2 max. The number 54. And so oh, I right. looked at that and at, at my age of 52, I was in what's called the 99th percentile. And to your point, I think it is another mm -hmm. biomarker like a telomere, like epigenetics of Absolutely. the fact that we're doing the things that are telling our bodies what we need to stay mentally, physically, biochemically, epigenetically young and youthful. So a hundred percent agree with you. Now I'm going to shift to complete 180 degrees unless you want to tap into that anymore. Nope, that is good. Okay. So you've explained beautifully the protocol of getting the system up and running and specifically putting in the nutrients, the chemicals, the biochemicals that are necessary for function and fitness. But I really want to hit on the last piece. Once you get people on that part, then you start saying, okay, now what do you need to pull out? And when I sit here and I think of two things, and I know you've spoken to this, but I want to hammer two things, gluten and sugar. Let's talk about those two things and what the destructive mechanisms are of those two, let's say molecules, or in this case, disaccharide for human health. Well, we'll talk about sugar first, because I, I think um, that is so compelling. Uh, sugar drives up insulin requirements uh, as to uh, that ultra processed flour-based products. Uh, and biologically, we're never meant to have all of that continuous feeding. Uh, yeah, which then sets us up for insulin resistance, uh, obesity, central obesity, uh, cognitive decline, anxiety, depression, early neurodegeneration, early heart disease. Sugar, sugar-sweetened beverages, incredibly destructive. Flour-based products quickly get metabolized into sugar, also very, very destructive. 
they will feed the wrong microbes uh, in our gut, uh, which then lead to the wrong metabolites in our bloodstream, accelerating our disease processes and accelerating immunosenescence or aging of our immune cells uh, and accelerate aging of the brain. So sugar and ultra processed, and by that I mean a flour-based product made into cereal, pasta, breads, and yeah, put whipped potatoes uh, in there as well. Yeah. Now the other compound, gluten, uh, is a um, uh, in wheat, rye, barley, many many ancient grains. And if you have uh, the DQ2, DQ8 alleles, and I have one of each, um, so. I'm at risk of developing a severe immune response to those uh, to gluten. Uh, and anyone who eats gluten will develop uh, some activation of zonulin, which opens the gut, the uh, gates in our intestines and the intestinal fragments, intestinal contents leak into our bloodstream. So I can get some bacterial fragments, incompletely digested food proteins into my bloodstream where my immune cells will say, hmm, you're too big, you must be an invading microbe. So I'm going to uh, develop an, an immune response to this protein. Uh, and so that's how multiple food sensitivities can develop. Uh, and because we've had so much glyphosate in our food, we have more leaky gut, more gluten getting into our uh, bloodstream, more gluten sensitivity developing, more uh, multiple food sensitivities developing. Uh, Europe, that doesn't have as much glyphosate, has much less of a problem. So they don't have as much of a leaky gut. Uh, if they start putting more glyphosate on their crops, they too will be able to uh, join us as well. Yeah. And if, if you have sensitivity to gluten, then because of the amino acid sequence of gluten and casein, the, the protein and dairy um, are so similar, um, you may have a reaction to dairy as well as gluten. You know, and the other comment that I'll make is that, you know, mammals, we've been raising our young with milk for about 200 million years. It's a great product. It's great food for infants uh, and young children. So they grow quickly uh, and very rapidly. It's filled with some growth factors. Uh, it's uh, it really is a superfood. Once, if as long as you don't have any gluten sensitivity or casein sensitivity, right. once your bone plates fuse, then those growth factors now have the opportunity to have me grow horizontally, which is not so good. So getting central uh, central obesity not so helpful, uh, and uh, increasing the risk of cancers. Uh, dysplasia is also not so good. So, um, you know, I, I think milk can be a, a really powerful food, uh, great nutrition for children. Um, once we become adults with fused growth plates, um, I, you know, I have concerns about the increased risk for uh, dysplasias uh, and uh, obesity. Yeah, I think immunologically, things have changed um, in the last 30 years. When I started practicing in 99, we had about one in 100, 150 kids who were reacting immunologically to the casein protein. And now it's about one in four. So the tolerance level, because of the immunologic shifts that have occurred over the last 
two decades seems to be that that reality is is changing so very akin to the reality that we're seeing more allergies true ige mediated allergies to foods like you know was a sesame seed was just made the ninth allergen so immunologically our tolerance is breaking and while i agree implicitly that dairy has value as a macronutrient the igf1 clearly is useful as you're a growing child i think unfortunately now 25 percent of kids or some variation on that theme can no longer tolerate in the pediatric world. That's what we see at the ground level, unfortunately. The scarier thing for me, and coming up, I'm about to do a lecture on this with autism. You know, they just uh, published a Duke study looking at the ability to pre-predict autism at 30 days of age, which seems almost impossible, but they used AI-generated algorithms. And one of the pieces, there's many pieces they're looking at, but one of them is milk protein intolerance. If they found milk protein intolerance for the first month, first month, your risk of autism went up. And I think that's just speaking to the reality that somewhere along this pathway, the immune system, the inflammation processes are overrun and they're overworking. And then it just, again, comes down to, do you have HLA-DQ2, DQ8 for celiac? Do you have HLA-B57 or 27 for ankylosing spondylitis? Whatever your markers are for genetic predisposition, then you end up having a disease that we give a name that then we see what it is. But I think it ultimately comes back to your earlier discussion that all of this stuff really needs to be looked at from the perspective of a global multi-pronged approach. There's no one single answer to any of these diseases. That's why pharmaceuticals have failed so miserably for Mm -hmm. most of these disorders because we're trying to plug one hole when there's 90 holes in the dike. And I think your work, and I just want to applaud you for an incredible scientific journey to do this yourself to say, you know what, this is not good enough. And whether it was in the beginning as I'm just going to make myself as functional as possible until my last days for my family or the next iteration to the next iteration. And now I'm jogging Terry, that's magical in the sense Mm -hmm. of your mind gave you the bravery to dig deep and dive in to the places that allow all of us now to learn from you. Cause frankly, I've learned a lot from you since you published that book. And I continue to learn from the likes of Alessio Fasano, Jeffrey Bland, mm-hmm. and all of you pioneers who have said no to allopathic medicine being the only answer to the problem. Now, I am not throwing allopathic medicine under the bus. I am an allopath. Oh yeah. And me I too. We still use drugs. Right. But boy, there's a much better way to treat these problems if we go upstream. And I was just thinking before I came on, I was looking at different articles about signaling pathways. And one of the ones that I'm really nervous about is pregnancy and diabetes and especially gestational diabetes. And I found an article looking specifically at mitochondrial biogenesis. And in the percent of diabetic mothers, they noted impaired biogenesis due to PGC1 alpha TFAM signaling pathway disruption. Well, what does that mean? Well, to your point, this is mitochondrial weakness. And wherever your mitochondria are weak, that's going to be dysfunction, brain, muscle, liver. I don't care. That means you have more opportunity for damage than, oh, by the way, let's say you're born into a world where you're exposed to toxins and you're bottle fed and you have milk protein tolerance. So now you start seeing potential fertile ground for neurodiversity, autism, ADHD, whatever. And so again, I speak these words because I am humbled by your story, because I'm not sure I would have the bravery to do that deep of a dive. And I'm a digger, I'm an onion peeler. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would have had the strength to do what you did. So for that, I applaud you. I'm 
I, I, it is an honor to speak to you about these things because I just find that to be so super engaging for my mind. You know, what? what is super interesting um, in my recovery, I uh, was banned as a speaker by the MS Society. Uh, I, I spoke to the uh, College of Medicine uh, about uh, having to adapt to a progressively more disabled life. But then when I recovered, I was talking about my healing journey. Then my lecture became controversial and I was removed from the curriculum. But I kept at it. I kept doing my research, speaking where I was invited. And, um, you know, I, I tell my students it's a 30-year journey to change the standard of care. Yep. We're 15 years into it. Uh, we had our network meta-analysis in neurology. Uh, that was very exciting. We have our second paper uh, in front of neurology. So we'll see if we can get in or not. Um, we have another 15 years to go. Um, we'll get there. Uh, but you have to be willing to persevere, even when you're banned, even when you're criticized as being dangerous. Yep. And unfortunately, the past three years have shown a lot of that ugliness around COVID and people speaking their minds and being silenced and shut down. So again, to the point, bravery, you've had it. I love it. You still have it. You're still doing it. Your positivity is infectious, Terry. I mean, I'm a positive person. I I can see you've got that in spades. I know that has carried you tremendously. I'm sure has carried your family on the journey with you. And I I think that's another beautiful aspect of your existence. And again, I applaud that tremendously. And for everybody listening, follow Dr. Walls on her Instagram. And I'm going to let you speak the words into existence for everyone. And I know your website and yeah. the, the Walls so, Protocol book. Please read it. So uh, my Instagram, Dr. Terry Walls, D-R, Terry, T-E-R-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S. My website, terrywalls.com. If you are a practitioner, come uh, work with us, get trained on the Walls Protocol and the Walls Behavior Change Model. Uh, you can learn about that at terrywalls.com forward slash certification. And if you're a patient, uh, sign up for, or a practitioner, sign up for my newsletter at terrywalls.com forward slash email, because then you can get some research updates uh, every week. And, you know, we'd uh, love to have you join the conversation and be part of my community. Uh, we have trained practitioners all over the globe, um, and I have a monthly call with them. As a matter of fact, that's what I was doing up until just before our, uh, our uh, podcast. So um, we'd love to have you join our family. Awesome. Love it. One last question. I ask this of all the guests and you don't know this, so I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to think about it, but you have a golden ticket. You can hand it into Congress or to the president of the United States to affect one change in the nation immediately. Mine would be school food would immediately be banned as its current form. And it would have to shift into only kitchen based, high quality, whole food, organic, and there would be a chef in every single school. That's what I would want. And I would oh. expect nothing else. And so you have the floor, you have a golden ticket. What would you ask for? Well, let's keep it uh, in the schools. I want the schools. I love that. I'm going to add a gardening class uh, and a cooking class. So we want to teach our children how to grow their food. We want to teach them how to harvest their food and how to prepare using ingredients. And we'll give them a little checklist with the goal of 200 plant species in a year. 
uh, they'll have the little checklist. How many greens did you have? How many uh, cabbage family, onions family, mushroom family? How many colors? Well, I love it. I'm giving them the fish. You're teaching them how to fish for the rest of their lives. And if you ever want to make that program come to life, let me know our local school system. I might try and implement it. We're starting our own clinically integrated network this year, and uh, hopefully we'll have enough funds to start playing with some possible protocols like that. So Terry, you and I need to keep in touch on this one. That might be a possible play. That would be lovely. Love it. Thank you so much for your time. As again, I am honored and greatly privileged to have you on the show today. Thank you. So what a conversation. A new look at a way of dealing with a chronic disease from an expert who didn't take no for an answer. And as she clearly stated, it wasn't a decision to cure the disease initially. It was initially a decision to live the best life she could based on the disease parameters that lay in front of her based on the history of the science at the time. But being a classic onion peeler, she went deep and started looking. Where are the other upstream pieces of information that could mitigate that that glide, pla- that glide path to the end of the disease. And then it transformed itself into, oh, well, there's more here than I thought. And oh, by the way, now we're actually stopping the problem, potentially even reversing most of the problems. Now you see go from wheelchair bound to bicycling. That's incredible. And for me, I think of this again from the anthropologic side, right? Historically, humans didn't have autoimmune disease in the volumes we have now. So there's something about our immune system, how it's acting now, that it didn't used to do to the volume it is doing now or the frequency. That says to me something upstream is triggering the system to be dysfunctional. And we know some of the science behind this now, toxin exposure, dietary shifts, changes, uh, sedentary behavior. A lot of the lifestyle factors that we do customarily now are dysfunctional to the immune system which then can turn the immune system against us. And then we have disease. Your genotype and your exposures are going to dictate what that disease is, whether it's systemic lupus erythematosus, multiple sclerosis, hypothyroidism of the autoimmune variety. But Dr. Walls clearly has shown us that there is a way to reverse, if not at least halt the progression of some of these diseases. In her case, halt and reverse. So for me, I think, again, upstream of this, there is some amazing amount of data here that could lead to the full prevention cycle of these diseases in the first place. If the decision to eat three cups of brassica or cruciferous vegetables, three cups of berries and three cups of greens every day can reverse the process that's going sideways, oh boy, the probability is that can prevent it in the first place so you don't ever have to suffer this problem. That's where I think the rubber meets the road for me as a pediatrician. Dr. Wall's work is emblematic of what to do if you have disease, but even more to me, an illustration of what we can do to prevent these diseases in the first place. And it makes me think tremendously about a recent podcast with Dr. Peter Atia, where he's discussing the world of cardiovascular disease from the perspective of HDL biology, 
and he's talking to John Casteline, who is a physician researcher from Europe in the Netherlands. And what he's stating in his discussion is that, oh, by the way, LDL or lipid lipoprotein biology is not a mistake, i.e., that people have all this risk of heart disease is not a mistake of human evolution. It was actually a construct of Darwinian theory during the Ice Age when thousands upon thousands upon thousands of humans survived. They survived primarily because of what people call thrifty genes, genes that allow you to maximize calorie storage, genes that allow you to maximize bacterial killing or viral killing in the case of maybe a a sword cut or some other injury. These genes were all very pro-inflammatory and pro-beneficial back then. Now you shift the narrative completely to a world where we're not battling bacteria and viruses the same way as we used to. We're not dying primarily of infectious diseases. So these pro-inflammatory, pro-pathogen killing mechanisms are now bad for us because what we're doing as a lifestyle decision actually makes that beneficial biology of the past not beneficial anymore. And I think Dr. Wallace is on that same path. The immunobiology here that she's speaking to in the past was very useful, a structure where you had the ability to have strong function of immune system activity against pathogens, whatever, can actually turn against you when it's not challenged. We know the data that lack of parasite exposure, lack of bacterial endotoxin exposure when young drives more immune polarity in the wrong direction, drives more asthma, allergies, and autoimmunity. So for me, this talk, this conversation was amazing because it is one of the first windows into reversal of upstream biological problems or processes that lead to a disease that we in allopathic medicine primarily only try to treat with drugs instead of what Dr. Walls did admirably was find other pathways because as we look at Alzheimer's biology, the drugs have been complete failures because they're trying to fix one thing. And that's not the way the system works. It's a multifactorial problem or a dike with 30 holes. And Dr. Wall showed us that if you plug most of those holes, you can really reverse disease. So let's discuss what a mitochondria is again. Mitochondria are, again, the powerhouse of the cell. They regulate the operation of intracellular signaling systems. They generate reactive oxygen species as a byproduct of making the ATP or the energy that we need. They execute fatty acid oxidation, what's known as beta oxidation, to take fats and convert them to energy. They participate in amino acid metabolism. They are involved in pyridine synthesis. They're involved in calcium regulation and cell survival. They're also involved in cell senescence, otherwise known as aging and and death. So it's pretty critical that we have mitochondrial balance or mitochondrial homeostasis throughout all of the processes of our body, which is how many mitochondria do you generate on a day-to-day basis and how many mitochondria do we lose on a day-to-day basis. And this is called mitochondrial biogenesis and mitochondrial mitophagy or phagy, meaning the swallowing over destroying of mitochondria. This is the getting rid of part. Let's look at some of the key words in this discussion. Mitochondrial biogenesis. So biogenesis meaning the biological beginning of the 
part of the cell in the body called the mitochondria, again, which is the powerhouse of every cell. What drives mitochondrial biogenesis is very important. We think of one of the big pieces of that is increased adenosine monophosphate kinase, an enzyme involved in adding a phosphate group on to adenosine monophosphate to make adenosine diphosphate and then eventually ATP or adenosine triphosphate, which is the major molecule that powers everything in our body from muscle activity to everything. And what are the things that we know do that? So mitochondrial biogenesis is increased by exercise. It is increased by fasting, so periods of time where you don't eat. It's increased by herbs like berberine and resveratrol. So these are very important things to keep in mind when thinking of ways to particularly add to your system of mitochondrial function in every cell of your body. So again, mitochondrial biogenesis is one of the key words. Mitochondrial protection, right? So avoiding toxins and heavy burdens of oxidative stress. So if you are exposed to large volumes of chemicals, if you're exposed to foods that cause increased oxidative damage, like our standard American diet of high flour, high sugar, high saturated fat all combined together, that potentially puts increased risk on our mitochondria to be safe in the environment of making the ATP, right? There's a byproduct of ATP production, and that byproduct needs to be dealt with from an antioxidant perspective. So what do we need there? We need to avoid the toxins, but also we need to add in antioxidant molecules from vegetables and fruits to help squelch the oxidant radicals that can cause damage to the body. And as Dr. Wall stated, there are supplements that can also be taken in this space. Coenzyme Q10, alpha-lipoic acid, uh, N-acetylcysteine. These are some of the players that are involved in this process to be thought of moving forward. Now let's get a little more granular. So when you think about the function of sugar, which is one of the main players in the human body in leading to dysfunction when in the overload state, and you can look at some graphics, like especially this one where it shows glucose availability from a Nature article, where they discuss high glucose leads to shutting off of adenosine monophosphate kinase, which then leads to the disinhibition of the mechanistic target of rapamycin, or mTOR, which then leads to what we call anabolism or increased biomass, and specifically increased fat mass, otherwise, and otherwise known as growth and proliferation. And this can, in effect, lead to all kinds of problems, including obesity and cancer, which I think may be one of the bigger reasons those two things are tied together. Typically, in the high-glucose case, mTOR shuts off PGC1-alpha, which then is heavily involved in mitochondrial biogenesis. So you actually decrease the biogenesis of the mitochondria, which in the end leads to all the downstream problems of diseases like multiple sclerosis and many other diseases of aging or autoimmunity. In the low glucose state, we see the entire opposite pattern happening. Adenosine monophosphate kinase turns on because we need more ATP, so it says, okay, let's make some more. Well, in turn, that means we have to turn on PGC1-alpha, which then means we turn on the biogenesis pathways of the mitochondria. The flip side is AMP kinase blocks mTOR activity, which decreases anabolism, biomass, and growth and proliferation, which in the end increases cell survival. This is all part and parcel to the systems of our body and how they're supposed to work. 
So for me, this really comes down to the basics of human biology that lead to then the ability of somebody to understand a disease like Dr. Wallace has been discussing with multiple sclerosis. What a fantastic deep dive into an amazing, amazing story. I don't know what else to say at this point other than her book is fantastic. Her story is amazing. And we all should start to take notes, especially us parents, that this is the route to solvency in children. The immune solvency, the avoidance of disease is by exercise, active sleep function, eight to 10 hours, depending on your age, children that are young, even more. A high-quality diet loaded with the cofactor micronutrients and macronutrients to make us healthy. Being stress-reduced and avoiding toxins. Those are the big ones. And there's more to be said, but those are the big ones that we should all be focusing on. So with that, I leave you today. As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this one or any of them, please share them. Also, rate me on uh, Apple reviews so I get an idea of the directionality of my podcast and the work we're doing here. And finally, just always remember, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or health, other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.